morning. So, it's 2017, and so I guess that means, you know, you know as, the, as the previous year is coming to an end, everybody's got to do their, their recap of the year. And one of the things that usually gets done at the end of the year is various institutions or businesses tell us what the word of the year is. And last year, 2016, according to the Oxford Dictionary, the word of the year was post-truth. Post-truth was the word of the year. Now, I looked that up because I thought I knew what it meant. I just figured post is after truth and that we live in a, in, in a culture, in a world that is... Um, we're living after the truth, or we're living beyond the truth, or truth no longer matters. But I, I looked it up, and there's a few nuances that I thought were kind of interesting about how this word is defined. And the word has to do with that objective facts are less influential than appeals to, well, I didn't spell that very well, appeals to emotion or belief. So objective facts are less Influential than appeals to emotion or belief, and, and you see, you see that a lot. It's like, well, I feel. Listen to some of the commercials that, that are going on today. There's a lot about feeling. Everything is about how you feel. Well, this is my belief. It has nothing to do whether or not it's objectively true or not. It just has to do with whether or not I feel it's true. That's one area of. Uh, or one definition, kind of the softer side, I guess, of post-truth. But there's a, there's a harder edge to it as well. And it has to do with the idea that... Let me see if I can word this well. According, This is all according to the Oxford Dictionary. That what I say, or what a person has to say... doesn't have to be true as long as it helps me obtain or attain my objective or attain a certain result. We used to call this the means justifies the end, basically. So post-truth. That objective facts are less influential. And that's true. I mean, you can go to a person, when we share the gospel with people, and we give them objective facts, it's like, it's really tough to overcome their emotion or belief, even though you're giving them, well, this is objectively true. Or, it's also come to the idea then that as long as I reach my stated or desired goal, what I say isn't as important. And so, of course, you see that in politics all the time. And I think that's kind of where this word came up because this idea of post-truth started to get used more and more towards the last part of 2016 when our campaigns were in full force. And so, um, it doesn't matter what I say, just as long as it helps me obtain my desired result. So, that is the word of the year according to the Oxford Dictionary in 2016, but I don't probably need to tell you this, but there is just nothing new under the sun. Post-truth is not new, and that's the truth. It's objectively true. Because I recall reading way back, a long time ago, or way back at the very beginning, there was... 
the statement, Hath God said? Has God really said? A desire to delegitimize or a desire or a temptation to take what God has said and call it into question. Certainly that can't be true. And there was an appeal to an emotion, the lust of the eyes and the lust of flesh and the pride of life. And folks, you and I (laughs) have suffered the consequences of believing that post-truth lie. And that lie, has God said, ended up, it was truly a lie, but it meant a desired end, it meant a certain objective, and that was to cast the human race into rebellion against God. On the other hand, we read of Jesus who comes to this earth and prior to his execution was interrogated by by Pontius Pilate and as the question is going on Jesus said these amazing things he says the son of the I have come to testify to the truth and so on the one hand we have has God said and that is a calling into question all that God has said and on the other side we have Jesus saying I have come to testify of the truth and so as we come to Luke chapter 6 verses 1 through 11 what is on the surface here or what we're going to see very clearly is this conflict or uh, this conflict regarding the Sabbath day what you can do and what you can't do on the Sabbath day. But at its very core, this is a battle for truth. It is a battle for what has God said. Because there's going to be a group who's going to say one thing, and then there is Jesus who will declare something completely different. So what is the truth? This is a battle for what God has said. You see, on one side, there is a group proclaiming, this is what God has said. However, outside of what God has truly stated, outside of God's truth, there is no salvation. Outside of God's truth, we perish. So we better be certain we know what God has said. The Pharisees are going to declare a religious system that leaves human beings utterly enslaved in the present and damned in eternity. And Jesus is going to come and push back against that by telling them the truth. On the one hand, you have a religious system that leaves people in bondage. On the other hand, you have Christ who pushes back against that lie with the truth and offers freedom. And make no mistake that when these two worldviews collide, there will be conflict. So, that's one of the things as we are going through, as we are previewing this, we are going to see this tension between an accepted system that left people enslaved and the truth that frees. That's be it behind, I guess, or underneath all of the controversy that's going on. I hope also that as we go through this, we will again learn of both the identity and the work of Jesus Christ.
And that's one of the things we're seeing over and over again in the book of Luke. We're seeing who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And as we've talked about, that um, what Jesus does, of course, is intimately tied to who he is. And when he says the Son of Man has the authority to forgive sins, that is tied to who he is. And that Son of Man character who, um, if you have not, um, if you're uncertain of who that is, go back and read Daniel 7 and you'll see exactly what Jesus is referring to. And we'll go over that a little bit today. So that's where we hope to go today. So let's read our text um, and then look at it a little bit more closely and see how um, God might enlighten our lives and strengthen us in His Spirit by learning of His Word. So in Luke chapter 6, verse 1, it says, On a Sabbath, while He was going through the grain fields, His disciples plucked and ate some heads of grain, rubbing them in their hands. But some of the Pharisees said, Why are you doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat? And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. On another Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath, so that they might find a reason to accuse him. But he knew their thoughts, and he said to the man with the withered hand, Come and stand here. And he arose and stood there. And Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And after looking around at them, all, he said, stretch out your hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored, and they were filled with fury and discussed with one another what they might do to Jesus. Our gracious Father, we come before you this day, and we ask that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit. Enlighten our eyes, open our hearts, Lord God. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and then mouths to speak your truth. So grant us favor and mercy this day, for Christ's sake. Amen. Well, we come to this, uh, these events. That Jesus is passing through the grain fields with his disciples. And the key thing here is that it is on a Sabbath day. Now, before we get going and, and we start looking at this, I think it would be wise for us to understand a little bit about the Sabbath day commandment because this is central to what Jesus is dealing with. So what I want to do is let's go back and look at Exodus 20. Exodus 20. And you can turn to verse 8. This is the first place we see in Scripture where God makes a command regarding the Sabbath day. And this is in the Ten Commandments. And this is what it says. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But on the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your sons or your daughters, your male servants or your female servants or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them and he re- and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. 
Let me just go ahead and read in Deuteronomy 5 a restatement of that command. Um, And in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 12, we read this. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy as the Lord your God commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your ox or your donkey or any of your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates, that your male servant and your female servant may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So the Deuteronomy passage is very similar to the Exodus passage, but it does seem to add this provision that you are to remember that you were once a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord brought you out by his outstretched arm. Therefore, you are to remember the Sabbath day. Now, there are a number of different other passages of text that deal with the Sabbath. I figure these are the two most significant, but we see a few other little passages where an individual, basically the command was, you're not going to work. Not only are you not going to work, but your sons and your daughters aren't going to work, and the, the sojourner with you isn't going to work, and your oxen and your donkeys and your cattle and your livestock, they're not going to work. Nobody's going to be working. This is a day to set apart and worship the Lord, and you will rest on the Sabbath day. It was a time of rest. It was a time of worship, and this was given... We live in a very restless society, a society that doesn't like to sit down and stop for a few moments. But this was given as a blessing and not a curse. Because remember, you were slaves in the land of Egypt. Guess how many days off slaves got? Yeah, they didn't get any days off, alright? So God says, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you a day off. Now, if your boss came to you and said, I'm going to give you an extra day off... Most of us would be saying, oh, right on, I'll take an extra day off. God said, I'm going to give you an extra day off. What I want you to do is I don't want you to work six days. There's plenty of time to get your work done. On the seventh day, I want you to rest. That's what I want you to do. It was to be a blessing. It was a time for us to worship the Lord, a time to remember His provision, a time to trust Him also. I'm not going to work. I'm going to trust my fields. I'm going to trust the livestock. I'm going to trust that God can make provision on this one day that the world will not stop spinning because I didn't get involved in its maintenance somehow. I will actually trust God to be God. So it began as a blessing and and not a curse. But here's the thing that eventually happened was eventually this... This command to not work, well, then we have to define that. What does it mean not to work? So all of a sudden, over the course of centuries and and millennium, all sorts of different things got added to what it means not to work. In fact, by the time of Jesus' day, this idea of you shall do no work came to cover essentially every aspect of one's life. It determined, they determined how far you could walk before um, not being work, and I think it was like 3,000 feet. You could walk 3,000 feet on the Sabbath day. And then they had all sorts of ways of getting around it. So like if your door, if you lived in one place, but let's just say this is the door to my house, but I lived in an alleyway and the street is at the end of the church. Well, we could go put a, a border there and then, then 
the door of my house so I could actually do 3,000 plus that. So we had all that, all sorts of ways of getting around 3,000 feet or whatever it was. But they had a, it, it came to be, and you've probably all heard, if you've been in church for very long, you've probably heard um, all sorts of Sabbath requirements. But it, it covered every, every aspect of your life. It, taking a bath. You shouldn't take a bath on a Sabbath day because if you did, you might splash water on the floor and then when you go to, to clean it up, that would be mopping. And by golly, you wouldn't want to be mopping and doing work on the Sabbath day. So it covered how far you could walk, whether or not you could take a bath. Yes, it even, it even covered whether you, where you could spit on the Sabbath. That's right, it covered spitting. Like I said, it covered every aspect of life. You could spit on a rock, but you couldn't spit in the dirt. If you spit in the dirt, it might form mud, and that might lead to building, making something. So we determine how far you walk, whether or not you can take a bath, and where you can spit. How you can eat, what you can eat, what you can cook, what you can all of these things. But I don't know, did you read Exodus 20 with me in Deuteronomy chapter 5? Did you see any of that? I didn't. Neither did Jesus. This all just kind of got built up over the years. This becomes the issue now. God had commanded none of these things. And so the, the disciples are walking through the grain field and they pluck the heads on the Sabbath and they pluck the heads of grain off. I don't know, the stalks? Is that what they are? I'm not a farmer. And they rub them and then they ate them. Well... On the one hand, there was provision. This wasn't stealing. You were allowed actually to go to a grain field and, and uh, glean the edges. And there was provision for that. So that wasn't the issue. It wasn't like you're stealing some guy's you know, source of, source of uh, income. It was the fact that you rubbed them together. And uh, that was... Basically, it was reaping and harvesting and winnowing and all of the things that you weren't supposed to do. This was working because you basically you harvested the grain and you can't do that on a Sabbath day. Did you read that in Exodus or in Deuteronomy? Again, I didn't. But that was the charge. You are working by harvesting. I think they broke four different laws that were not to be broken or not to be done on the Sabbath day. And the disciples broke four of them. And so the, the Pharisees... And I don't know how far they were walking. It says they were passing through the grain field, so they might have been on step, you know, or maybe they'd only gone 2,000 feet. And the Pharisees were with them, so I don't know how far they had walked to get to see him, but that's all kind of behind the scenes and not for our, our uh, not given to us. But anyways, so the charge was that you're working on the Sabbath, and so now Jesus comes to their defense, which is... A, in and of itself, kind of cool. Jesus defends these false accusations. Jesus defends his disciples. He's very quick to defend his disciples. And he is a great defense attorney. And he begins by a, a little bit of sarcasm or perhaps just a flat out insult. Sometimes we think Jesus is all kind and nice. And, you know, he would never do anything to upset somebody. But, but this is... He's talking to the Pharisees, and he begins with, Haven't you read? Basically, haven't you read the Bible? So the religious leaders are saying, You're doing what's unlawful. And Jesus said, Have you even read the Bible? (laughs) 
And he goes and says, well, well, haven't you read what David did when he was hungry? And he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and took and ate the bread of presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat. And he gave it to those who were with him. The first thing I want to note about this is Jesus says, haven't you read the Bible? Have you not read? And then where does he go? He goes to Scripture. This is basically a passage in 1 Samuel. I think 1 Samuel uh, 21. Haven't you read 1 Samuel? Now, here's, here's the big difference between the Pharisees and Jesus. The Pharisees are proclaiming a law that doesn't exist in the Word of God. And Jesus goes to the Word of God. So once again, Jesus goes and defends his actions by appealing to God's word. The Pharisees, on the other hand, went to something they made up, or their forefathers made up, or somebody made up. They were going based on their cultural understanding of their religion. Jesus is going back to the very beginning and goes straight to God's word. So you're going to some man-made understanding of what God's word says, but I'm going to just go straight to God's word. So we see this, this great contrast. So Jesus draws his response from the word of God. I think R.C. Sproul says this beautifully. I think it's in your notes. It says, you have mastered the traditions of men, but you obviously have not mastered the word of God. And so this is what he's saying to them. And so basically he says, David was traveling with some companions. He was fleeing Saul and they went to this town called Nob and went to the priest there because that's where the, the, the tent, the tabernacle happened to be, to be at that time. And inside the holy place were uh, a couple of different things. And one of the things in the holy place was the bread of presence. And I believe there were seven loaves um, of bread that were were there and and you weren't allowed to eat them only the priest was allowed to eat them well David and his and his men were fleeing from Saul and of course it's kind of a a, the priest there at Nob doesn't know they're fleeing from Saul and David shows up and says man we're hungry you guys you got anything to eat and he says I don't really have anything to eat he says the only thing I got is the bread of presence but it's not um but God says only, you know, the priest can eat this. And David says, well, we're really hungry. He says, well, I'll tell you what. Are all your guys, are, are they pure? Have they, they haven't defiled themselves. No, no, they haven't defiled themselves. They're all uh, good and righteous men. He says, okay, then here you go. Here, eat the seven loaves of bread, the bread of presence that is only reserved for priests. And so Jesus brings this up. He says, so wait a second. Here's, the, here's, here's the, the law, the ceremonial law of God to not eat the bread. But in this particular instance, when there was a need, when divine mercy was necessary, it was perceived as okay. Of course, this brings us to a very interesting question then is to... to Does Jesus using this passage of text, does this challenge the scope of the law? In other words, um, is this just kind of a a matter of situational ethics? Well, you know what, they needed something and so we can violate. How often can we violate God's law? But I think what the idea here was David was permitted to violate 
this ceremonial law in order to fulfill the law of mercy. And you'll see what he says. If David, here's a it's kind of an if-then argument. If David was permitted by a priest to, to violate divine law to fulfill divine mercy, then Jesus' disciples should not be accused of violating a man-made regulation. Does that make sense? So if David was permitted to violate ceremonial law, to fulfill divine mercy, then certainly my disciples can violate a law you guys just made up. If God is going to have mercy in that situation, which is a word he actually spoke, then certainly my disciples should not be held accountable for violating something that you just made up. That's kind of the the argument here. In other words, then ceremonial law gives way to human need. So that's that's his response. He's saying, you know, human need outweighed some some ceremony. But then Jesus says something that is utterly profound. And he says, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. The Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. I have a feeling this made the religious leaders forget everything else that they were thinking about because this man, Jesus, this rabbi, just said that he is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, first of all, he's he's already said that he's the Son of Man. Now he's affirming that he's the Son of Man. And he says, by the way, I am the Lord. I am the boss of the Sabbath. Now we need to understand exactly who this Son of Man is. And I know we've discussed this before, but it's imperative that we understand who this Son of Man is. Is and oftentimes people say, well, that refers to his humanity. It does not refer to his humanity necessarily. It refers utterly to his divinity because in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel sees a vision, and in these visions, he sees the Ancient of Days, and one, like the Son of Man, comes to the Ancient of Days, and to him was given all authority and power and dominion to rule over the nations forever and ever. And Jesus is saying, that's me. I'm the one who has all authority, all power, all dominion, all glory uh, to rule over all nations forever and ever. I, the Son of Man, am the Lord of the Sabbath. And why am I the Lord of the Sabbath? Who made the Sabbath? God Himself. I am the one who put this into existence. I think I am an adequate interpreter of my own words. So you just made up a whole bunch of stuff. But I'm the boss, the son of man who has all authority and dominion forever and ever. I spoke these words and I think that I know how. I think I know what I meant when I said them. See, when he says... We now know who he is when he says he's the son of man. When he says that he is Lord, he is not just an enforcer of the Sabbath. 
He is not a relayer of information like Moses. Moses went up on the mountain to get the information and part of that information was you shall remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. And he came down and related to the Israelites. And Jesus says, listen, I'm not just a relayer of information. I am Lord of the Sabbath. I am the boss of the Sabbath. I'm the one who created the Sabbath. Therefore, I determine its meaning. And we read in other parallel passages where Jesus says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, it was made for your good. It was made for your blessing. It was made for your well-being. Not to burden you under a load that no man can bear. Unfortunately, my commands have been put into a, have been so twisted that nobody can bear what you guys are interpreting. You can't live that way. And it was never meant that way. Go back to Exodus. Go back to Deuteronomy. What was it made for? It was made for a day off, a day to rest, a day to worship. And to remember that you were once a slave and now you aren't because of God's mighty outstretched hand. Oh, praise be to God. That's what it was for. Don't worry. God can take care of all the stuff that needs to happen today. I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. You Pharisees are, do not rule the Sabbath. I do. And you are not to make up new rules whenever you see it fit. I'm the one who interprets what the Sabbath means. And again, it is a day for man's benefit. It is a day for man for mercy. And all, all that has happened is your laws have brought bondage that no man can bear. And so, I am the Lord of the Sabbath, and I am the interpreter of God's Word. That's a pretty massive statement for a person to make. Well... This helps us understand a little bit of who Jesus is. And then we continue on, and in verse 6, this happens on another Sabbath. And the question is whether or not a person can do good or do evil on the Sabbath. And we see that Jesus, as he enters into a synagogue, he was teaching. And once again, we note that... Jesus' primary ministry was teaching. We see that throughout Luke. And so he's teaching in the synagogue and he is teaching the truth of God's word. And there happens to be a man there with with a withered hand as well as religious leaders. And so we have a couple of main characters. We have Jesus, we have a man with a withered hand, and we have the scribes and the Pharisees or the religious leaders. But it's interesting to note the... What's going on in the hearts and minds of the scribes and Pharisees? And I think this is key for us understanding this particular passage of text. And there was a man there whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and the Pharisees watched him to see whether he would heal on the Sabbath. Now, if we just stop there, that would be an interesting statement. But we don't stop there because there's a so that. They wanted to see if Jesus was going to heal on the Sabbath so that they might find a reason to accuse them. So here we have these scribes and Pharisees and they're sitting in the synagogue and their sole purpose is seeing if Jesus is going to do something that they can use against him in a court of law. That's all they're there for. They aren't there. Here you have the Word of God teaching the Word of God. We're not there for that. We just want to say, how can we find something to bring against you? Here we have the God of the universe who spoke this Word in person. 
in the flesh, teaching. I mean, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes you go through school and it's kind of cool when the author of the book shows up and describes with the author or the, the, the person who discovered some great formulation or some great discovery, the very person who discovered it shows up and gets the lecture in the class. You're kind of going, well, that's kind of cool. Here's the God of the universe who put all, like we read earlier, put all the stars in the, in, in the sky, knows them by name and there's not one missing. That's the one who's there teaching. Well, you would think it's like, well, that's kind of cool. I just want to hear what he has to say. Instead, they're there so they might accuse him. I think they're missing the point. See, they care not for the man who has the withered hand, nor do they care for the word of God. They only care that their agenda be fulfilled. They only care to accuse Jesus. Because it would have been forbidden to heal a man on the Sabbath. The only reason you could heal on the Sabbath is is if a life was in danger. And this man, his life was not in danger. And we see that in another place in Scripture. There There was a an opportunity for Jesus to heal a woman, and they said, Well, heal her tomorrow. And she'll live. Of course, Jesus confronts them and says, you know, this poor woman's been bound for all of these years. What better day is there to heal her than on the day when we're all gathered together to celebrate the God who brought us out of bondage? What a great day to free a person. Why wouldn't we? But they're, no, 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 don't heal anybody. You can do that tomorrow. There are a few things that you could do on the Sabbath and so you could heal a person if, they, if their life is threatened um, you could have a baby I guess that makes sense babies don't wait really they're not going oh Sabbath day <laughs> hang out they call that labor so it's work but the, the more important thing is you could be a midwife too you could come and help uh, you know, you didn't just didn't leave the poor mother there by herself in, in her house. Midwives would come in and assist the woman, and that was okay. But here's this guy with a withered hand, and you're saying we can't free him from his, his malady? Then it says, and Jesus knows their thoughts. And I think this and this idea that they came to accuse them. He knows their thoughts, that they're there to accuse him, and this is key. In fact, they want him to heal the man. Oh, please, 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 Jesus. Oh, please heal the man. Please, please heal the man. Not because we care for the man, but we so badly want to accuse you of something. Please heal him. Because we are ready to pounce. He knows their thoughts. And then he asks him this very strange question. So he has the guy come over. He says, come and stand here. And then he asks this very, very odd question. It's odd to me, maybe not to you. But he says, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save a life or to destroy it? And that just was an odd question to me because it's not the question I would have asked. 
probably maybe not even the question you would have asked. I might have asked something like this. Is it lawful to do good or to do... Is it better to do good or do nothing? See, the the scribes and the Pharisees weren't telling him to do evil. They were just saying, don't do anything. Wait a few hours. When the day's over, you can do whatever you want to do. First of all, they are not questioning whether or not Jesus can heal. They know he can heal. They're just wrestling about when it can be done. But Jesus doesn't phrase that question that way. He says, is it lawful to do good or to do evil? And so, I guess there's a couple ways that we could understand that. On the one hand, the evil would be doing nothing. When you have the opportunity to do good and you don't do it, that could be interpreted as evil. But I don't think, and I think that's legit. I just don't think that's what's going on here. I think there's something else. Certainly to do nothing when you have the opportunity to do good, I would ascribe that as something evil. I just don't think that's getting at the heart of this. Think. He knows their thoughts and their attentions and that they are there to accuse him. They are there to rage against him. And so he looks at them. Is it good... To do, is it lawful to do harm or to, to do good or to do harm to save a life or destroy it? And then he looks around at them and then he tells the man, stretch out your hand. Here's what I think is going on. This is no longer about the Sabbath. You probably guessed that. See, because Jesus is confronting them with the truth and, the tru- and he's confronting them with the truth about their own wicked hearts. That's the evil. Which is right? Healing a man on the Sabbath or plotting murder on the Sabbath? I think that's getting at the heart of it. That's the evil. Is it right to do good, heal the man, or to do evil? It's not to heal the man or do nothing. It is to heal the man or to do evil. And he knows their hearts and that they are there to accuse them and find something to indict him on and to ultimately eliminate him from their lives. And he knows their thoughts. And so is it good? Which is lawful? Me healing this guy? Which, by the way, I, we read Deuteronomy and we read Exodus. There's nothing in there that would say you can't heal a man on the Sabbath. Is that lawful? Is it more lawful than you sitting here plotting wanting to kill me? Oh, he's getting right at the heart of the issue. Oh, this is truth. This ain't no post-truth. This is absolute truth. You are wicked, wicked individuals and you seek to destroy the Son of God. Is that okay? Can you sit in the, in the synagogue in good conscience, hearing the Word of God, teaching the Word of God, and you think it's okay to plot my murder? Meanwhile, I'm going to heal man? Which one is right? Oh, he just got right down to the heart of it and got into their very souls. See, the Pharisees desire to condemn Jesus where Scripture does not. While the Pharisees plot to do harm to a man which is a clear violation of God's law. Who's violating God's law now? My healing a man which the Scripture says nothing about? Or you're plotting to kill a man on the, while you're worshiping? Oh, Isaiah spoke about this in chapter 1. He says, 
Don't bring your offerings to me. Your hands are blood red. I love this thing. Tells the man to stretch out his hand. And he did. And his hand was restored. This is really interesting because he didn't do any work. He didn't even say be healed. He just said stretch out your hand. That's not a violation of any law. It's not like Jesus did any work. But they still were not happy that he healed the man. And it says that they were filled with awe and wonder at the glory of God. No way. And they were filled with fury. Are you kidding? You're sitting in a synagogue hearing Jesus proclaim the truth of God. He's teaching in your synagogue and he heals a man who has this deformity, this malady, this this thing that limits him. It's his right hand. That's his working hand. That's how he's going to make his living. And he's healed and we're filled not with awe and wonder at how gracious God is, but with fury we need to kill the person who perpetrated this act. So Jesus then strikes this knockout blow to the very heart of the cultural religion. And when this happens, the the leaders are enraged. See, truth is always true, though it's not always popular. And Jesus got to the truth of the matter. You are wicked in heart. And you're making up religious rules that do not save and actually will send men to hell. Meanwhile, I come to seek and to save the lost. And I'm exposing your hearts, not just simply so that to condemn you, but so that you might see the wickedness of your ways and repent and turn and be saved. So... I guess by way of application, we need to make sure that we have a commitment to God's truth and that we need to separate God's truth from popular culture or from religious culture of the day. That's what's going on. These were the religious leaders and they had propagated a lie, a lie that would not save an individual from their sins. And Jesus came to put things back and put them right so that men and women might be saved. And so we need to separate our religion and our the truth of God from popular culture and remove all that is not in Scripture. And I think a great place to start is, um, it's, I still hear it, I almost hesitated to, to say this simply because I figured everybody knows it, but I hear it so often that maybe we don't know it. Or it's a lie that's been so put out there that even unbelievers think that this is the core of Christianity, and, and it kind of got prompted by me a couple weeks ago. As you guys know, um, the pop singer George Mar- Michael died. He, uh, I wasn't a George Michael fan, but anyways, he's a pop- popular guy, and he died. And it's very well known he was a gay man, and that's neither here nor there. But a Facebook post came in from one of my um, uh, friends, and it said something like George Michael some of the great things that he did how he gave to this a lot of money and paid tuitions for schooling for all these kids and there were a couple of kids that he personally um, paid for their schooling and everything and and the caption was um, but yet some Christians say he's going to hell because he was a gay man and yet he was one of the most generous giving individuals um, if 
and they couldn't reconcile it. I, I don't know Mr. Michael's eternal state. I pray, pray that with his last breath he called out, Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. I don't care if he was gay or whatever. If he calls out to the Lord, he will be saved. And I believe that the Lord will save us even at the very last moment. Lord, have mercy on me. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. But, but the idea was that he was a good man. How can we condemn a good man? They completely misunderstood the heart of the Christian faith. That is a cultural understanding of the Christian faith. And it is not true. That one must be good to be accepted by God. And I hear that all the time. People come to me and they have friends who are in cults and false religions and they say, but they're such good people. These are good, strong Christian people who say these things. And usually my response is, well, if good people went to heaven, they're first in line. But the truth of the matter is this. There is none righteous, no, not even one. All of George Michael's great deeds, I, I, I have no idea how true these statements were, but it was on Facebook, so I'm pretty certain it's 100% accurate. <laughs> but even if they are true, times a thousand. The law of God had been violated. And he needed to repent of his sins. Just like every good person, so-called good person. We need to turn from our wicked ways and call upon the Lord who will save us. And that's truth. It's not post-truth or pre-truth or subjective truth. It is absolute truth. It is objective truth. That there are people who in our in our world, help alleviate the suffering and the misery that this fallen world, and yet even then, they still need to know the Lord. So I'll conclude with this. We began by saying that we live in this post-truth world, or that's what we're told anyways, a place where facts are less influential than appeals to emotion and personal belief. That untruth is justifiable if it accomplishes a personal goal. There's nothing new to that. Because it began in the garden when the serpent said, has God really said? And appealed to their desire, their own personal desires. And it did accomplish a personal goal for the serpent. It did exactly what the serpent wanted it to do. It's not justifiable. It brought the downfall of mankind and made necessity the sacrifice of the Son of God. The worst crime ever committed in the history of the universe is that the Son of God was murdered. It's nothing new. But Jesus spoke the truth. He says, I have come to testify to the truth. 
and he has spoken the truth that he is the Lord of all, all authority, all power, all dominion. He is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who makes the rules and we are the ones who say to him, yes, Lord, those are just and reasonable. Let me follow you all the days of my life. Let's stand and let's pray.